Welcome to UCLA Extension's Business Insights with Roger Ternaden, where we highlight hot topics and underlying economic trends useful to you. Now that we've arrived at an official stagflation economy and are likely into our second quarter of negative economic growth, let's try to agree we've entered a new recession. As we know, the technical definition of a recession is a period of two consecutive quarters of negative economic growth as proclaimed by the National Bureau of Economic Research. Even if by chance the economy in this quarter were to eke out a tiny growth percentage, I would argue we still have all the serious issues of combined stagflation and recession. So let's not mince words or go into denial that we're on a slippery negative path that threatens not only the value of our dollar's purchasing power, our job market overall, as well as continuing supply chain blockages. Please recall that in our prior podcasts, before COVID, we pointed out serious disconnects between new full-time job creation, many who have been unemployed dropping out of the official labor force, and ongoing debt creation, including overspending by Congress. Now, we are facing many consequences that the Federal Reserve literally wallpapered over during COVID by its massive new money creation. It's time to pay the piper. Interest rates of pretty much all maturities, 60-day, 90-day, 1-year, 5-year, 10-year, 20-year, 30-year, are climbing. Bond prices are dropping. The stock market is headed down in a highly volatile fashion, with the job market in a new weakening pattern. The Fed is aiming to solve hyperinflation by retarding aggregate demand to decrease demand to meet the shrinking levels of supply. Its strategy is to take money from the economy so that it cannot be spent to purchase goods and services. This effort will cause economic decline, serious decline. What is needed to tackle this inflation problem is to boost supply the supply of labor, and more goods and services, not less. The Fed's tactics fail to address the key supply side of hyperinflation. They are working the wrong side of the price equilibrium equation by bringing on a recession, impacting the consumer as well as new business investment commitments. The Fed has clearly decided they need a stock market crash, one that lasts a while in order to take stock portfolio wealth out of the economy, to take money from the pockets of households in order to shut down spending. That strategy does nothing to increase supply shortages, which is the core problem, supply shortages. In fact, it takes away from the incentive to produce more supplies of goods and services and takes away the supply of existing jobs. I said existing jobs, forget about new jobs. It's a counterproductive and dangerous approach to managing the U.S. economy, as we'll see as this year plays out. This sort of attack by the Fed is aimed at curtailing aggregate demand for goods and services to shrink the gross domestic product pie down to the size of a shrinking aggregate supply. Sounds the opposite of what we should be doing because it is. This spells a great recession, in my opinion. In an ideal world, supply would increase to the level of demand, but the Fed does not have the tools to accomplish this, as we witnessed over the past two years when the Fed pumped $7 trillion into the economy out of thin air. Shortages happened regardless. 
Economic prosperity requires growing aggregate supply equal to growing aggregate demand, or growing aggregate demand to equal larger aggregate supply. That keeps inflation at bay, supports a rising stock market, and improves wealth prospects for households. That, in turn, generates a greater GDP and greater tax revenues without the need to raise tax rates. The key is to have rising aggregate supply. The opposite is occurring now with no easy solutions in sight. The shrinking of aggregate supply is the big problem. We are not taking a victory lap here on our podcast as the economic downtrends that we have forecast are hurting many, including new job seekers, first-time home buyers, and savers who have invested in stocks and bonds, to say nothing of the businesses that will experience shrinking profit margins with inflation in turn impacting new job creation. I am personally empathetic for the hurt caused by the down part of an economic cycle, but remain fixed on helping our listeners continue to learn about risks, investing, and job threats while filtering out the not-so-helpful noise generated by our 24-hour media cycle. I no longer call it a news cycle. We at UCLA and UCLA Extension have leaders across the many professions and career paths who are geared to help many people to achieve personal job and lifestyle goals. This is what we do. Check out how we can help you directly find your own job and financial successes at www.uclaextension, which is one word, Edu. In this podcast, I'll share how you can benefit or at least protect yourselves and families in a stagflation economy in terms of your investments, whether they be for a new home, children's educations, or a continuously improving family lifestyle. Today, I'll include data and examples for how and why various assets typically perform during stagflationary environments. Also, why bonds and growth stocks tend to have the most trouble with stagflation. And finally, why the value of stocks, commodities, and real estate are typically the places to be for increases in asset values, which is what you want to do for your wealth. Having larger amounts of cash is also called for now, as this down cycle will provide someday down the road great asset buying prices. And we hope to see the next upturn coming, but it's not going to be for quite a while. However, this time around, the major upturn actually may be some years ahead of us. One more time, stagflation is when inflation is high, but overall growth is low or negative. Let's talk about bonds. Bonds are obviously a rough place to be because their yields are often below the level of inflation in an inflationary environment. A bond is a promise to pay certain amounts of money in the future, and the purchasing power of that money is significantly diluted during an inflationary environment. Stocks often don't fare much better. If the purchasing power of currency is relatively stable, then it's easy for companies to plan for the future, to make long-term contracts, and so forth. If the currency is unstable, it makes planning much harder. A company's revenue is rising as they raise prices, but their expenses are rising too. And it's hard to predict whether revenue or costs will rise faster. This week, we have news that labor costs are rising substantially higher and faster than anticipated. 
In addition, as bond yields rise, it puts valuation pressure on highly valued equities. We'll talk about that a little bit more in a few minutes. Real estate tends to do better than stocks and bonds in an inflationary period, especially if you have a fixed rate mortgage attached to it. The house price or the asset typically adjusts upward with inflation over time while the fixed mortgage, the liability, gets inflated away. This depends on valuation though. In inflation adjusted terms, a given house might stagnate sideways for quite a while. And as we know, Real estate is a local market, and city-to-city real estate prices can behave quite differently trend-wise. However, the mortgage market's a national market, so it's quite possible to lock in fixed-rate mortgage prices, although they're a good 2% plus higher than they were when we began talking about our inflation warnings late last year. Industrial commodities, for example, oil and copper, tend to be the big winners in inflationary environments. Almost by definition, if inflation is high, it means commodity prices are rising. And particularly when the commodities themselves have the supply chain issues. Usually during inflationary environments, commodities are undersupplied, and it often takes years to bring on enough new supply. Some have rightfully told me in my view that it takes 20 to 30 years from the time an opportunity for a, an iron or copper or a gold mine is uh, outlined to the time it's producing in the United States. Even in Canada, it can be 20 years. So when commodity shortages do show up, they can't be resolved very quickly. And commodity shortages weigh on real economic growth and they contribute to a stagflationary situation. And additionally, commodities can be very volatile with sharp pullbacks, even in environments that are beneficial for them. Finally, monetary commodities, and I include gold and Bitcoin, although they're quite different in the monetary commodity segment. They have an eventual correlation with inflation, but not necessarily at the same moment of high inflation, like industrial commodities do. Gold, in particular, tends to do well during stagflationary environments where economic growth is decelerating, but inflation is still pretty high. It also tends to hold up well in outright recessionary, disinflationary environments, at least compared to stocks and bonds. We've warned in our podcasts against Bitcoin as an investment. It's not yet ready to be categorized as an investment. It's also not a store of value in case you haven't watched the price fluctuations over the past couple of years. It's not a store of value or a widely accepted transaction currency, unless you happen to be going to El Salvador or the Central African Republic. In fact, it is a speculative asset, just like new high technology stocks are. Think about it. Bitcoin prices are strongly correlated to the NASDAQ stock index. For years, these over-the-counter stocks sped ever upward, as did Bitcoin. Now the NASDAQ is heading down rapidly, and so is Bitcoin. Take heed. Recalling that a picture is worth a thousand words, and given the problem I can't paint a picture on a podcast, I'll relate some true stories that ideally present somewhat of a picture of the damages of a high inflationary environment. Overall, in the 1970s in the U.S., both stocks and bonds performed poorly. Commodities and real estate did very well. 
A lot of articles about inflation use the financial data from the U.S. in the 1970s, but in this podcast, let's use a modern example with an emerging market. This is the here and now, and I'm just talking about the past year or two. The example is Turkey. There are more lessons here than you can now imagine with respect to the impact of high inflation. Given the United States is not Turkey, and we will likely not experience the hyperinflation of Turkey, in other words, 60% a year of inflation, that's hyperinflation for sure. Think about some of the relationships and experiences I'm going to cover related to high inflation. And keep in mind, if the stock market, as an example, goes up at 5% a year, but inflation is running at 10% a year, the higher stock market is misleading investors as they are actually losing 5% a year in their purchasing power. So the fact high inflation begets higher stock market prices oftentimes is not the real metric. It's to look at the increase in asset prices versus the inflation rate. And as I've mentioned in many prior podcasts, the official CPI, which is often used as an inflation rate, grossly understates the real inflation as measured in constant market baskets of goods, services, and housing. But let's move to Turkey for a couple of minutes. Turkey is experiencing very high inflation, as I just mentioned. However, unlike another country without a control high inflation, Venezuela, Turkey is not a broken economy with outright hyperinflation, at least not at this time. And I also will point out Turkey is a G20 economy. So it's one of the top 20 economies in political and economic power. The inflation rate in Turkey as recently as 2020 was 5 to 7% in that range. In 2021, it moved up to 15% plus or minus. And then toward the end of 2021, 20%. Now it's running at 60, 60%. Anyone who in the past year or two continued to hold Turkish cash, the lira, or Turkish bonds really got killed in terms of purchasing power. Meanwhile, Turkey's stock market is up almost two and a half times in lira over the past five years. And the stock market pricing looks like an exponential curve moving up. So if you knew nothing else, you would think the stock market looks really good. However, in dollar terms or constant terms, just taking out the inflation, Turkey's stock market was actually cut in half And those who invested in Turkey's stock market with respect to what the currency would buy if they sold their stocks, they lost half of their investment. And since the stock market dropped by half, it's been treading water for the past couple of years, not going up. I'm talking about in real terms, but if you look at a Turkish stock market lira chart, it looks ever upward. Not true. Valuations for Turkish equities have actually gone down and gone down substantially, and it's very challenging for companies to operate when the unit of account is degrading at such a record pace, unit of account being the currency. Turkey's GDP, in turn, in dollar terms, has been in a downtrend for nine years. That is negative growth. Gold, in lira terms, has done far better than everything I've mentioned so far over the past years, five or six years, it's up about six times. The same would be true for most commodities in Turkey, with many of them having performed even better than gold. Let me mention real estate. We all know real estate is illiquid. It's often private, in private hands. It's harder to measure in real time. But some data for Turkish house prices through 2021 is interesting. 
Turkish house prices have approximately doubled over the past five years in nominal lira terms, but if you take the inflation out, they haven't increased at all. Now imagine you had this type of price action in a market with long-term mortgages attached, and the mortgage is at a low interest rate because it was put in place before the serious inflation. For example, simple numbers. Suppose you bought a $100,000 house with 20% down and 80% or $80,000 as a fixed rate mortgage. In five years with $20,000 down and an $80,000 fixed rate mortgage with a price double from the house going from $100,000 to $200,000 due to the high inflation, you would still have approximately the same size $80,000 mortgage, but your home equity would have jumped from $20,000 to $120,000. I mean, minus the operating costs of having the home, of course. That's pretty good. Real estate in highly inflationary environments, depending on the jurisdiction, however, often gets rent controlled. This limits its performance as an investable asset when it happens. And we saw that in the United States when evictions were not allowed for about two years during COVID. And in some locations, that's still true. So the landlords are paying all the higher expenses whether they be fuel prices, electricity costs, water, and so forth. But in a lot of cases, they've not collected more than 60 to 80% of their rent because tenants have not had to pay their rent and they have not been evicted. This is another type of what I would call rent control. Overall, especially for a primary dwelling with fixed rate debt attached, real estate is a reasonable defense against inflation. But of course, it's not very liquid. This example focused on Turkey over the past five years, but you'll see similar trends if you look at high inflationary periods in developed markets in other large economies. Generally speaking, during unusually high inflation, which typically includes a significant stagflationary element to it, bonds have a very bad time. Stocks have a moderately bad time. Leveraged real estate does great. And commodities or hard monies do great. In our next podcast, we'll share how it makes perfect sense to expect a downtrend in the overall stock market as interest rates are rising going into a recession. This I expect to continue for months. My most serious expectation is that stocks and bonds will continue the longer term trend to decline in future months and maybe into next year. There will be counter trends or strong up days, but the long-term trend is no longer up. If you doubt the sustainability of specific company stocks you own, it may be time to sell them and build up cash balances. Many have high long-term profits you've made by holding them during this long up period. You know, we've been in a bull market, as everybody knows, for years. But be careful. Don't give back these profits. There's nothing wrong and there's much right about taking your profits and standing aside during what could be a severe and prolonged recession. Be careful, be alert, take heed, and we'll pick up this topic again in the next podcast. Be sure to email us at rtornadin at uclaextension.edu on more specific questions, which we will answer either personally or select as part of our future podcast. Hosted by Business and Legal Programs Director Roger Tornaden. This podcast is presented by UCLA Extension and produced by Jamie Moss at Studio 10960.
These podcasts are made for educational purposes and are not financial advice. The goal is to educate and provide resources on focused economic and job trends with the latest support research so that you can make more informed financial and career decisions that best suit your personal needs. UCLA Extension offers more than 5,000 online and in-classroom courses taught by over 2,000 leading practitioners to help you get from here to there. For more information on this podcast or our financial and legal programs, please check us out at www.uclaextension.edu. We know it's about your life, not just your money.